0: Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello, welcome to A PhD Student Reads episode 16. Last month it was episode fifteen, which was important for uh, those in the Hispanic community, right? That's true. You remembered. For this month it's now it's now rich. Mm-hmm. It's rich white people. The sweet sixteen. The rich white people uh, important. In, in a couple of months it'll be eighteen, where people in the UK are allowed to drink. All good things. Um, to get it out the way because. In the first, I think, what, 14, 15 of these, I forgot to say, you're supposed to like, share, subscribe, etc. Wherever you get your podcast, follow the show on Twitter, at PhD Reads, which is related to those of you who voted in the Twitter poll. I did indeed follow your instructions and read Joker by Brian Azzarello, but we'll get to that later because I do have other things to talk about first because that Joker Azzarello book is short. And that meant I could read other things and also buy things. So are you familiar with the website Zavi with two Vs? Is that available in Canada? I know it's available in the States. I'm not. I mean, maybe it is uh, available. I I just have never heard of it before. Neither did I. But I saw on Reddit that they were offering this deal where you could buy a mystery box of ten DC hardbacks, and then well, then you would buy them, and you would get them, and so I did such a thing. In pounds, it was twenty-two pounds or something like that, which is a reasonable mm. price for for ten ten sure. hardbacks. It's the 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 Eagle Moss hardbacks, so the ones that say DC Graphic Novel Collection on the top, and then the, all the spines line up to make a picture, which now bothers me because I have ten, and well, there's a hundred and fifty-one oh, of no. them, so. I definitely don't have a complete picture, <laughs> but I also do not have enough money or enough space to buy all 151. Not yet, anyway. In terms of what I got, they're, they're fine. Mostly JLA. I did get one book I already owned, Death of Superman, but whatever. So I would recommend, if you have maybe no hardbacks or and want a, ten, a random 10 assortment, two caveats from reading the reviews and my own experiences. If you buy more than one, It does seem like they just have a lot of stock of some books. So in the reviews it was like I bought two and 90% of them Mm -hmm. were the same. And also some of the stories are split up into two parts and they don't give you both. So I've got part two of a Green Arrow story and part one of a Superman story but not the other part. Which is a mild inconvenience but I guess that's what eBay and Amazon are for. (laughs) Yeah, as I said, I've also read other things. So uh, as... Shops are allowed. I can go into shops now. So I went to our, my, the local comic book shop here, Plan Eight, and they have sort of. I wouldn't. Mm, some of them look used, but I don't think they are. Maybe just old, an old like bit at the front where the owner has either there's a trade paper back there, or he's grouped together single issues in a big pack. So it's like a complete story mm-hmm. section. So in there, I found Superman versus Mongol, published. On New Year's Eve in 2013, at least according to the Amazon listing, I realised I said a couple of months ago when complaining about Nate Gray, the most powerful X-Men ever, that I'm not really a Superman fan, and reading this confirmed that. So it collects a bunch of stories from the 80s. So we've got DC Comics Presents 27 and 28 by Len Wein and art by Jim Starlin, who most people... Probably know from the Infinity Gauntlet. You also get number 36, 30 there, 36 by Paul Levitz and Jim Starlin, and 43 by Paul Levitz and Kurt Swan. And uh, probably the most well known team on this uh, collection is uh, the Superman Annual Number 11 by a legendary team of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Basically, it's just the, the first couple of stories with Mongol in, but there's also appearances from Martian Manhunter, Supergirl, Starman, The Legion Superheroes, Batman, Superman, and the new Robin at the time, Jason Todd. The stories are all fine. In one of them, Superman is a bit of a a dick. There's no other way of saying it. He is tasked... I think something like, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane have been taken by Mongo, and like, shrunk down into this cube. And Mongo is like, if you go get this artefact for from, from me... I will free them. So Superman is like, Ah, oh, I'm Superman. I'll go get this, this artefact. Free them. Defeat Mongol. Win-win. Um, so, that he does. And, uh, well, uh, protecting this artefact, it turns out, is now the responsibility of the Martian Manhunter. He just beats up the Martian Manhunter to get this artefact. He's like, I'm Superman. Whatever I want is more important than you and your important role in protecting this artefact. Mm-hmm. So... Well, 1980s Superman, a bit of a dick. I also read some, I guess I like to punish myself, I read some more 1980, 1990s uh, Marvel comics oh, no. in uh, Avengers The Morgan Conquest, published, according to Amazon again, the 1st of January 2000. So either comic companies are releasing their trade paperbacks on weird days, or these Amazon uh, listing dates are... They're probably not accurate. That seems a very odd day. <laughs> to To release book New Year's Day and New Year's Eve of their respective mm-hmm. years. Anyway, this collects Avengers one to four from 1998, written by Kurt Busiek and George Perez, with art by Alvey and Bob Weirchek, I think is how you pronounce that. So it's a follow up of Marvel Heroes Reborn. Are you familiar with this ill-fated line of comic books?
1: So these books came out roughly when I was still in Peru, living, growing up in Peru, and I had less access to comic books. So I had I had gone uh, recently on vacation, or before this, I had gone on vacation to uh, the U.S., I think, maybe, and I had bought some comic books mm-hmm. off the rack. And so contextually, I kind of knew of Onslaught, and it seemed like a lot of heroes had died after Onslaught. So yeah. kind of, but not really. Like, it wasn't until later where... You know, with the the internet and going into comic yeah. books a lot more, that I've kind of filled in those blanks.
0: So, for those of you that don't know, in the nineties, Marvel Comics not doing particularly well on the financial front. Mm-hmm. So, they basically thought, "I know what we can do to get people to read our comic books. We will not create them ourselves. We will give them to other people, and they're popular. So, they'll make our books popular, and it'll be great." It was not great. It, so if you ever see that picture of Captain America with an absolutely massive chest, massive arms, mm-hmm. this is the, the Heroes Reborn era of, of Marvel Comics. So when you think of 1990s, this is, I imagine, what most people people think. Shockingly, it was an ill-fated line, and so they came up with a whole event where they were oh, this Heroes Reborn, it was just an alternate reality, and uh, now everyone is back to, back to normal. And that's where this the Morgan conquest takes place. If you imagine House of M, but instead of getting rid of all the mutants, Scarlet Witch is used by Morgan Le Fay to transport all the Avengers and change reality in general. So it's some sort of medieval depiction. So all the all the heroes have different names, wear atrocious comic comic costumes, and so imagine them just in uh, well medieval times. And that's pretty much it. It's three. It's a collection of four issues, but really it's a three-issue story, and then a fourth issue dealing with the fact that there's like fifty Avengers, and so there's just an issue dedicated to them picking a team. It's it's a fine event. Would I say it was good? No. <laughs> but shockingly, after complaining about the uh, Age of Apocalypse was too long, i say this was too short. It's it's the story is over in three issues, and by so at the end of issue one, they're all transported to this alternate reality and then a few pages into issue two captain america has just willed himself out of this reality just somehow knowing that it's made up and then half the avengers are back to normal and by the end of that just, <laughs> oh but well i think probably if it'd gone any longer you'd hear me complaining about something else um i have a
1: question i uh, just because it mm-hmm. seems kind of, it, it, what you're saying reminds me a lot have you ever read
0: uh 1602 by neil Gaiman or marvel i have
1: 1602 i think it's
0: I have seen it many a time, but I've not mm-hmm. actually read it. But as it's written by Neil Gowan, I imagine it's good. Yes, rather yes,
1: than yes. Bad. It's 100%. I would recommend it. But just, I, I guess, I, if you ever have the time, maybe you should read it and see how mm-hmm. you feel these two things compare. Obviously, the time is not exactly the same. Like I would say, this uh, Morgan Le Fay one seems to be set much earlier, perhaps by centuries. Uh, this the Mar- Marvel 1602 is set in 1602. Mm-hmm. But... Just conceptually, it seems very similar to what you read. So I would love to see like a contrast between those
0: two things. Yeah. Some things in this story just don't make any sense. So like reality has changed. So they're all transported to Cornwall, England, right? So all their superhero names are changed, whatever. Captain America, his name is changed to something like Paladin America. It's like, okay, oh. but he supposedly lives in Cornwall. Why on earth would his name still have America in it? <laughs> And especially
1: because you could just do the Steve Rogers, right? Like, you could play around with Steve yes. Rogers. You don't have to go by his Captain America.
0: Name. And it's not as if he looked any different. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> obvious who it is. But it's the 90s, a time mm-hmm. long, long forgotten. Do you know who went first last month? This seems to be a, a re- returning feature. Who talked? I have. I, I can't recall. Um, let's say that it was me, but I'm not sure if that's true. All right. Well, we'll continue my... Uh... So, what I actually read was Joker, published by DC Comics on the 17th of October, 2008. See, that seems like an actual day that comic yeah, books would come out. Not New Year's Day. It's written by Brian Azzarello, with art by Lee Bermejo, maybe? Inks by Mick Gray and colors by Patricia Mulvihill. Found this in a charity shop for £2, and I can definitely say... It's worth £2, if not much, much more. After months of bright, garish, outlandish X-Men, this was a well-wanted and very pleasant change of pace. During some Wikipedia reading, it was originally called Joker the Dark Knight, but it was changed because The Dark Knight also came out in 2008. Right. But the story depicted in Joker is very much... It could easily have occurred in... uh, Nolan's universe. It's all very Mm hyper-realistic. Killer Croc is an example. He appears in the story but he's not like a big green-skinned lizard man. He's more just like a big black guy with some sort of skin deformities. Um, But the story itself... so Joker has been released from Arkham Asylum and a low-level thug named Johnny Frost is sent to pick him up. So Johnny Frost, he is... I wouldn't say protagonist, the main character. Um, together they then make their way to Killer Croc and start forming some sort of semblance of a friendship. After being in Arkham for an undisclosed amount of time, Joker wants to get his turf back because, in this, he's less clown prince of crime, more like Heath Ledger, mobster Joker. Mm. Um, so he's now lost all the stuff that he had to the various other crime laws of Gotham. So Joker and his allies, now including Johnny Frost, make their way back to the bar from which Johnny was originally sent. And there he's, Joker reintroduces himself to Monty, the man that is running the bar, and sent Johnny to go pick him up. Right. Because he couldn't be bothered to do it himself. This man has supposedly been managing Joker's affairs whilst he was in Arkham. And a party begins to celebrate their their boss's return. We're also introduced to pole dancer Harley Quinn. I mean, she's in Harley Quinn in the fact she has blonde hair and wears the sort of animated series Harley Quinn you think of. She barely speaks in the book, so... Mm -hmm. I mean, she's more there just to be like, oh, yeah, look, it's it's Harley Quinn. During... Whilst she is dancing, everyone is distracted. Joker takes Monty out back and this is where we really get to see the tone of the book. This is only a few pages in and uh, Monty is pushed through the stage curtain and he's been skinned alive from the neck down. Joker then puts a, a dollar bill on his, I guess, previous, previously alive employee and this somehow begins Johnny's infatuation with his new boss. We get some information on who this this Johnny Frost is. He's been in and out of prison. This is his fifth time being released. We know he has a uh, partner, Sherry, but she's now filing for divorce. He's sort of always been a low-level criminal, but someone that wants more out of his life of crime. And he now thinks that working directly under the Joker is his way to the top. Johnny, Harley and the Joker make their way around Gotham recruiting various people, killing folks here and there, and meet up with the Penguin. And here the Penguin is sort of like the the financier the of the crime boss of Gotham. All the illegal transactions that they're making basically mm-hmm. go through him. So he knows where everybody's money is. And someone that's basically had his turf taken away from him, the Joker doesn't have much money, and so, well, wants, the, wants Penguin to make some investments with the the little financial backing the Joker has that offer a quick return, uh, a, a substantially increased quick return. So he wants money fast. Johnny also receives a warning from a corrupt cop that he is running with the wrong crowd, which is, I mean, it's pretty obvious to the reader, <laughs> but this warning pushes Johnny closer to the Joker the two of them make their way to a restaurant where another of the Joker's former associates, some mob name, a mob man named Tommy, um, he was, I guess, in a similar position to where Johnny is now. But after the Joker was sent away, was given a bunch of his turf to look after himself. So he, it's basically, he's done what Johnny wants to do and, and has climbed the, the crime ranks to having his own piece of turf joker not too happy about this but makes a deal with tommy that he says i'll keep you on my payroll if you give me a cut of all the money you're making you know, okay that's fine and as uh, the joker is leaving he turns around and just shoots this tommy in the head so now the joker himself owns this turf with tommy's men now being the joker's men so then you just get panels of just people people are dead. The Joker is tearing up Gotham to get what he thinks he deserves back. But there is one man standing in his way, Harvey Dent. And in this, Two-Face is very much two people. Kind of like Batman Forever, but good, in that each side of of the face is a different person. This is depicted in the lettering font used, so you do get some sort of idea as to which version of Two-Face is speaking because obviously sometimes it's just it's a face-on view of the man, so somewhat difficult to know which personality is in control. But the Two-Face won't take the Joker's call, and this is very frustrating for the Clown Prince of Crime. Uh, and so he kills one of his own men by smashing him over the head and stabbing him with a glass bottle, and then burns down his own bar, and just out of general frustration. And here we start to get the idea that maybe working for the Joker isn't quite what Johnny expected. You do have to wonder what Johnny was expecting, but, well, he's starting to see that his plan to get to the top, maybe he could have picked a different crime boss to align himself with. The cop that we were introduced to earlier makes a reappearance at a bar where Tommy is resting, drowning his sorrows, who's to say, Um, and he takes... He's under the payroll of uh, Harvey Dent, it turns out. And so Mm -hmm. he takes Johnny to Harvey, and Harvey also basically warns him that if you work with the Joker, you will die, because, and to quote, working for the Joker, death is the punchline. Later that day, Joker and his gang are attacked by Two-Face's forces. Uh, It's basically a car chase. Uh, The car that Johnny is driving the Joker is in is destroyed, and a wounded Joker and Johnny flee down a back alley only to be brought face to face again with this corrupt cop that's been hounding Johnny the entire time. Mm-hmm. But before the Joker can even say or do anything, you Johnny shoots this cop in the head. So clearly, whilst having his doubts that working for the Joker is less good for his life, he's still very much infatuated with the idea that he thinks you know, doing all of these heinous acts will get him to where he wants to be, and then he'll have some semblance of control and things can go the way he... He wants them to go. The body of the cop is then hung in a tree outside of Dent's house, above. At least looking at the panel, it's in a tree, and Harvey Dent walks out and picks up a newspaper, and then, dripping blood, like, hits his face. I understand. It's, it's a, it's a nice-looking panel. But if I was to walk out my house, and, you know, there's a big tree there, I think I would see that there's a body in it long before bending down to pick up a newspaper. But... Right. I guess some sort of you know, leap of logic just for the nice panel that is produced. <laughs> this encourages Two-Face and the Joker to actually meet and they do this at Gotham Zoo. Shockingly, mm-hmm. things don't go to plan. Har- Harley Quinn is dressed up as a gorilla and a gorilla with a Tommy gun and all of Two-Face's men are gunned down after Two-Face goads Johnny by bringing Shelley, his now ex-wife, along. The Joker also slits Two-Face's wrists with his own nails. So I guess Joker's got very sharp nails. Um, And then whispers something into Two-Face's ear that basically scares him into submission. So the Joker has pretty much got what he wanted now. He is in control of the crime families of Gotham. And this also begins the, the final, the third act of the book. And when things really start... Falling apart for our main characters, especially Johnny. So the Joker and Johnny break into this random apartment, and uh, there's just two old people in there. As you're reading through, like, who could these possibly two old people be? Turns out they're nobodies, and Joker just wanted to murder some people. Mm -hmm. And now you really, Johnny is like, oh no, what what have I done? Why am I here? Um, Harvey Dent in the meantime, has activated the Bat-signal, and finally Batman makes an appearance in the final few pages of the book. Um, Mm -hmm. Harvey has realised that he can't deal with Joker his way, and so one needs Batman's help. Um, We then get Joker going around his various holdings of Gotham, and at each of those, you see Batman has made his attack. So we get a panel of these two black gloves coming towards Harley Quinn, for my first reading, I thought it was the Joker pushing Harley out a window, but no, it's <laughs> it, they're Batman's hands. Um, yeah. The Joker then also starts telling this story about how he once knew a man that wanted to drive around the world in a single day, and every time he failed, he blamed the car that he was driving rather than uh, the fact that his idea was utterly insane and that the Joker is very much like, I subscribe to that theory, you know, but I could drive (laughs) around the world. He then makes his way to Killer Crocs, like Hideout, which is sort of like a butcher's, where it sort of suggested that Killer Croc may eat the the meat, being people, that are hung up there. You get there, and all of them are bound in... uh, what are they called? Bowler? Those things that you th- throw? That got balls on the end? Yeah, Bolo. those. So, again, Batman has come here. You don't see it. You just see the aftermath. So, Joker and Johnny make their way onto one of the many bridges of Gotham. And the two finally come face to face. Joker pulls his gun and then starts to use Johnny as a human shield. Really, Joker hasn't cared about Johnny this whole time. You know, he's obviously... It's the Joker. He's out for himself. Surprise, surprise. Yes. Of course. He asks Batman why he leaves a bit of his face on show underneath the cowl, to which Batman replies, to mock you. This mm-hmm. is my favourite panel of the book by a long way. The art is great throughout, but I really think it's Mulverhill's colouring here that tips it over the edge. It's like a painterly, sort of washed out, pale colours. Yeah. yeah, The art is great. It's all hyper-realistic, but the addition... I think if it was coloured in a way where it was also hyper-real, I think it would be a bit mm-hmm. too much. I think that this painterly style is a nice in-between. And yeah, when at these final panels, it contrasts with... So Batman throws a batterang at and hits Joker in the face. And so Joker's got blood all over his face, but that's not coloured in the... like It's like bright red. Sort of reminded me of... I mean, it's a bit of a hyperbolic comparison, but... The bit in Schindler's List where there's the woman in red that contrasts with everything else. A bit like that, but much less important, Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this Azarello comic book is in any way Schindler's List. I mean that, that very clear to the masses. It's just good. This this thing that the fact that the Batman has now been mocking the Joker it just tips him over the edge and he just blows half of Johnny's face off. Um Yeah. And so as the two i say most well-known figures in Gotham start to fight. The camera shifts away from them and onto what Johnny is doing. And he's just making his way to the edge of the bridge and then just jumps off and uh, kills himself. And that's the end. Mm-hmm. And no no happy endings here. Yeah. I say, if you haven't read it, I would. Anyone that hasn't read it should read it. It's short. That's a for a grim tale. I think if it was as long as age of apocalypse one it would get very tiresome and two i think it would start to you know everything happens for a reason here it's not just oh it's then another thing happens it's just to continue the length it's all straight to the point and after reading age of apocalypse for four months i can really much uh get behind that yeah for sure yeah i i, I love this i mean i i don't
1: know how familiar you are with um this particular book but it has kind of uh even a bit of a, a, a loose sequel, yeah. I would say, like not as as involved as a continuation of this story, but rather kind of some hints here and there that they are told within the same kind of universe. Uh, it's another Azarello and uh, Liebermejo book called Batman Damned. Right. So I think maybe I would check that one out. Azarello is great. I think he is a, a high-quality writer. Um, you can definitely tell when you read a book like this that he has a, a clear vision of the type of story that he he wants to tell, and it's like um, the 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 DC superheroes in many ways are kind of these embody, embodiments of, of gods, and it's kind of like a question of like what happens when when gods decide to play kind of among us, right? And the one exception to that is usually like Batman, who's a much more mundane, much more grounded hero. But I think uh, Azarello in this book still manages to kind of show the cost of of getting involved with these sides of things. Like, obviously, um, Johnny Frost picks the wrong side of anything here and is completely out of his mind thinking in any way that he would be... Uh, like an equal or or somebody that matters to to somebody like the Joker but you know throughout it it's kind of like this brutal suffering uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in cost of this uh, these wrong choices that that people make Uh, yeah I I love this one too I've read it before Um, I haven't read too many uh, main universe DC books but like whenever there's these like kind of Batman standalone graphic novels I, I usually do pick them up like the let me look here to the right and see what I have there. Like you know, like Hush or the 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 long Halloween. I think yeah. it's called. Is that what it's called? Uh, like the Arkham Asylum by Grant Morrison. Like all these ones, they're always great stories. I think um, Batman's uh, Rogue's Gallery is just something to to really envy. I think for for most other comic book writers out there, yeah.
0: I think I it's always just nice just to see someone's different interpretation of things. Obviously, you know, writers artists change all the time, but. When you're stuck mm-hmm. in the main, the main, but there's only so far you can go. for yeah, it's it's totally, I'd say, inappropriate yeah. to for just the main mm-hmm. Earth Prime or whatever. It's,
1: yeah, and, and I think uh, like the Joker definitely has uh, an important place in like pop culture. And often, if you go to, I guess maybe the the more so mainstream uh, places, you it, you're kind of left wondering like, why exactly is the Joker so resonant when other villains who are kind of equally unique and uh, you know like don't land the same way and then you read books like this one or, or say yeah. the killing joke by alan moore and it's like there, there's a lot a lot there that you can work with i think and they're and very interesting
0: absolutely And continuing i imagine grim and and miserable <laughs> what's more What's
1: um, Matt Murdock been what's, up to? What's happening in the world of Daredevil? Yeah, so it's like for, for you know, the, this month I finished up the the Bendis run of Daredevil. There is four trade paperbacks left to, to discuss. The first of the three I'm going to go by very fast. Uh, it's called The Widow and it's still written, obviously, by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Alex Maleev. And colors by Matt Hollingsworth. The letters are done by uh, VC's Corey Petit. There is a 40th anniversary super special included in This Widow trade paperback, which has art by Michael Golden, Greg Horn, P. Craig Russell, Phil Hester and Andy Parks, Chris Pachalo and Tim Townsend, Jay Lee, David Finch, Frank Whiteley, Alex Maleev. And colors by Justin Ponsor, Greg Horn, Chris Pachalo, Jun Chung, Frank Darmada, And uh, letters by VC's Randy Gentile. And it's uh, going back, I guess, to the widow is the first part. You know, it kind of it starts. I mean, last we checked in with Matt Murdock, his his life had been uh, falling apart after being outed in uh, an act to end the, the kind of futile back and forth that he had with the kingpin. He bit the king. He beat the kingpin to the pulp. And kind of declared himself to uh, to be the, the, like, if they needed to, if criminals needed to look up to a kingpin-like figure, then he had decided that he was the kingpin mm-hmm. of Hell's Kitchen. Other heroes, obviously, were not on board with that. At one point, you know, they kind of suggested that he was having a mental breakdown. This got back to his wife that he had married in secret during this year, Mila. And... It all kind of came crashing down, right? Like he had to acknowledge that perhaps what he had done was wrong. That uh, you know, like Mila kind of confronted him and left him after asking if, like, this their marriage was part of this mental breakdown that he had been going through since the death of Karen Page. And you know, he still technically is being is is out there, right? Like his life is clearly a mess, and that's kind of where this book starts off. Like we're uh, we kind of start off this issue. Following this uh, black-haired uh, lady who is doing some type of uh, spy mission, eventually we find out that this 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 black-haired lady is no black-haired woman at all. It's actually the Black Widow with the wig on, and you know, doing her <laughs> typical alias like spy uh, tactics. Oh. As you as you read the book, though, you there's some other stuff happening in the background of a lot of uh, geopolitical conversations that end up with uh, the U.S. government asking Nick Fury to pull uh, pull Natasha Romanoff out of her mission and bring her back home, that she is part of some type of ongoing conversations. Nick Fury kind of tells uh, the U.S. government that he will work to do that and instead sends her a message, his close friend, um, basically saying mission abort, disengage, disappear. And the place where she decides to disappear is to, to show up once again in Matt Murdoch's life, You know, they kind of uh, have great conversations. Like, I I won't go into too much detail about the book. It's still a fun read, but it is much uh, less. It's much looser, I guess, in its connection to the main story, which is why I don't want to go too far into it. The main argument ends up being that um, Natasha Romanov here is hiding in in Daredevil's life at the time because it's such a mess, and so she continues to do that. And I think. it's it's a good and interesting read, but like I said, a little less involved in the main plotline than the other ones. The the fortieth issue, kind of uh, an anniversary, is also a fun read. I think to me, one of the the best or most interesting parts definitely comes when it it uh, when at the end, kind of throughout this issue, uh, he, it's it's a bit of a discussion of where daredevil's life is and daredevil's life needs to go after everything he does end up meeting with dr strange and dr strange uh he asks him kind of what's he going to do next and and i only think this is funny because of of what we know now but doctors uh daredevil asks dr strange if there is a magical way for dr strange to put everything back to how it was before so you know his his life in, in organized again him not being outed and all this stuff and dr strange suggests that no that there is no way to do that and so (laughs) i think it's just funny because later on in spider-man i don't know for people that may have or may have not read the spider-man books um he magic is kind of the way that they end up putting peter parker's life to back to the way it was so it's interesting that that could not happen when uh when Daredevil wanted it, but it could happen later for Peter Parker. But anyways, that's kind of The the Widow. It's the, the it's volume number 10 in the Bendis run, but not as important to the main story. So it's kind of why I want to move on to the next book, which is called uh, The Golden Age. The Golden Age is also written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by uh, Alex Maleev and the colors done by Dave Stewart, The The Letters. Uh, VCs, Chris Eliopoulos and Corey Petit. And uh, that's kind of the the creative team behind Volume 11, which is the Golden Age. This one is is much more interesting in that it returns Bendis to his kind of very noir um, roots. Like when we had originally started discussing uh, the Bendis run, I had mentioned that, you know, like a lot of the elements of noir do involve uh, kind of the city being a character Mm -hmm. in itself. And, and it starts out with uh, an old man just kind of wandering the streets of Hell's Kitchen, like trying to go to a restaurant that he once knew and it kind of being like a McDonald's or like all these things. And so like the city has changed around him. As this book progresses, we kind of see constant comparisons to, to three different eras. The modern era, which is displayed by, you know, the, the Alex Maleev art that we've been used to uh, throughout the, the, the books. Then there's a full on black and white uh, type of art style that represents like the uh, this character at his youngest um, when he's very, very young. And then there's kind of like a, a golden age of comic books style, like very like, you know, like the little dots yeah. that they used to do to, to fill everything. And that kind of represents like this middle era. And so we find out that this character, his last name is Bont. I, bel- I believe I can't remember his uh, his first name. He uh, was a criminal. He was like a low-level criminal at the time in this kind of, I guess, black and white era. And just through some, some serendipitous timing, he happens to find himself with uh, a bunch of diamonds, which, you know, obviously diamonds equal money, money equal power when it comes to the crime organization. And he's kind of suggesting that, you know, like we grab all these diamonds and leave to his, to his girlfriend. His girlfriend happens to bring up, you know, a little bit disconcerted by the suggestion of leaving, that she wonders... Is this related to what happened to Lucky? And he asks Lucky Luciano. And she says, yes. And so what we find out is that Lucky Luciano was kind of the kingpin at right. that time. Right? The person in charge. And the, the girl mentions that she was singing at a bar or performing in some type of way. And they pinched uh, Lucky Luciano and they sent him back to Italy. And so this tells uh, Bont that there's nobody in charge now. And so he looks at these diamonds that are in his hand and he realizes, I'm going to make a play. And so we kind of learn from that moment that say like uh, he must have got, he, he must have used his power to become Kingpin because when we see him next, it's kind of like this, this golden age of comic book style. And we see him that he's already, you know, the person in charge. And it's like the very typical uh, uh, like mobster uh, boldness and confidence where it's like, yeah, I'm doing stuff wrong. You know it. I know it. The cops know it, but come prove it. Right. And so he's constantly in confrontations with, with Daredevil and uh the lawyer Matt Murdoch and eventually this leads to to his arrest and so we kind of see that when we started out this old man that was kind of looking at the city around him had been serving for a long long time in jail and now it was just seeing how much the city has changed and so what we kind of uh, return to like the modern era setting and we see him meet with you know like one of his former colleagues he, he Alexander Bont, which is the name of this, this criminal i'm not remembering he meets up with him and tells him that he's still angry. He still want he he wants his back his his place and he wants to justice for all the people that failed him. And so this old man, he's kind of like not treating him too seriously because he's like looking at a, a a frail old person that's been stuck in jail for a long time. Like what could he possibly do except that you know there's there's been this this plot point that was brought up earlier in the the Bendis run, where there's MGH yeah, yes. on the street, right? And so. He, his mouth starts foaming, and all of a sudden, he uh, basically throws the furniture all across the room and pretty much punches him through his body. The, the, this old man to start getting justice. And then the next moment that we see this, uh, Daredevil's already trapped, and he has the gladiator uh, with him. The gladiator is, is, a daredevil villain who is uh a mentally i guess ill villain that that's uh it's not portrayed i guess now nowadays at least in a way that's disrespectful of it but at the time when it originated i guess it was just like an easy way to say like this person's villainous because he's just mentally ill but it is part of his character now he also is more complex he he is not a bad person but he is uh you know he has a, a passion which is making costumes and he often does it for superheroes, you know, like in... I don't know if you've seen the Netflix show, but, like, the the Daredevil costume mm-hmm. that, that is made at the end ah. is made by uh, Herman Melville, which is, is is the name of the the gladiator. He throws, like, the, the, the. I will say the most ridiculous part of his character is that, like, he throws circular saws, but I'm always wondering, like, how many do you have? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like a finite power. where you keep them? Yeah, and it's like, but, you know, whatever. I, I, that's just part of it. Um... You you kind of see how he gets entangled from the very beginning with Bond. Like when Bond rises to power, he kind of reaches out to the Gladiator and strikes one of these you know like monkey paw deals de- deals with the devil, where it's like, you I'll help you, but then you you know like you owe me something bad is going to happen eventually, and that's kind of what we see payoff in in the modern era where the Gladiator a man a man who once again like you know had kind of left this life behind is forced to to return to it and has captured the Daredevil and now is trying to kind of sort of punish him uh, because Bond wants his revenge for what happened and the power that he lost. And so this issue, you know, kind of continues throughout. It's uh, in in parallel to what is happening to Daredevil. We kind of see some some, uh, flashbacks to Angela del Toro, which is one of the detectives on the Matt Murdock case that we had Mm -hmm. seen earlier during the rise of the Yakuza. And uh, she also is the niece of uh, the white tiger, who, if you remember a lot earlier, had been had gone to jail for trying to stop a robbery. And then a police, a cop got shot. And, you know, he wasn't responsible, but he was found guilty. And in kind of a one last act of desperation, he ran out into try to try to escape and he got shot down. And so the white tiger, his powers come from these talismans that he wears around his neck, Hector Ayala. He basically, I guess, uh, wills them next to his niece, Angela Del Toro. And so she shows up at Matt Murdock's uh, house and kind of, I guess, Daredevil, Matt Murdock is still in this position where he doesn't want to openly admit that he's Daredevil because he's kind of trying to fight this every which way that is possible. But she's kind of like, you know, like, forget all the BS. Like, I'm not here for the case. I just want to know why do people put on a costume? Like, she doesn't understand why Daredevil would go through this hell. She doesn't understand why her uncle would go through this hell if it never seems to end well. And the reason why is because she has inherited these talismans. So she shows them to, to Matt Murdock and they kind of have this uh, a bit of a training going on where he he helps her understand the reasonings behind being a hero and how the talisman works and, you know, kind of why his uncle was important. And this all comes to, to to uh, I guess, a climax in that, you know, Angela de Toro, the white tiger, is the one that actually helps daredevil escape his imprisonment when the gladiator has trapped him and it's also a lesson for her to understand why people put on the costume right like it's kind of the spider-man with great power comes great responsibility Mm -hmm. and so on and so all ends well for for daredevil it it ends poorly for the gladiator and most importantly for bond who you know once again is on uh, the mgh but at some point it's just too much mgh and his heart explodes and dies and
0: don't do it, drugs.
1: Don't do drugs. You know, and it's kind of cool because um, uh, it's kind of cool because it's bringing back a lot of these plot points that we had seen earlier, like the white tiger, like the MGH. You know, Melvin Potter. Sorry, did I call him something else? Melvin Potter is his name, not her. I think I called him Herman Melville. It's Melvin Potter, the Gladiator's name. Herman Melville and he,
0: rings a bell, though. Who's that?
1: Yeah, I don't know where I'm grabbing that name. It's somewhere in my brain for some reason. But it's Melvin Potter. He ends up going back to jail. <laughs> And then we kind of flash back to the golden ages of the comic books one last time, and that we see right after kind of uh, Daredevil gets Bond landed into Moby Dick, is this one? Yeah, Herman Melville yeah. wrote
0: Moby Dick.
1: Yeah, Melvin. this is why. Uh, it, and uh, we see in these last pages after he goes to jail that the person that takes the power after um, Bond gets sent to jail is none other than Wilson Fisk. And so that's kind of the continuation of this hist- the city's History with crime, right? It was like Lucky Luciano fell, and then Alexander Bont took the the control of the crime organization, and then he fell, and then the kingpin rose to power. And uh because the Daredevil was directly responsible for sending this man to to prison, you can almost see that in a way, Daredevil is responsible for his own, you know, undoing because he led to Wilson Fisk yeah. gaining this power. And it's again these themes that that Bendis likes playing with in like you know crime when you are Daredevil and Matt Murdock and you're working inside the law and outside the law this is uh, you're setting up some complicated paradoxes that you're at one point are going to have to respond to right. It's it's not ever as simple as you just being able to get away with being judge-a-jury and executioner. And that's, uh, I think, one of the best things that, that Bendis does. That's kind of it for volume 11. Uh, volume 12 is called Decalogue, and it is the second-to-last volume of the Bendis run. It's, again, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by Alex Maleev. Colorist is Dave Stewart, not Hollingsworth, who had been seen in, it have, we had been seen in the other ones. Letters done by VCs Corey Petit. And uh, it's really another uh, brilliant issue. I think it's like a lot calmer and low key than than um, than the other issues that or volumes that Bendis had been doing. It mostly all takes place in kind of this support group for people that were trying to deal with the with the reality of Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen. It's like in the basement of this church, and it kind of it, it's it tells. The same story from a lot of different perspectives, right. and it has to do with what the year of Matt Murdoch taking over as Kingpin in quotation marks, I guess he's he would argue that he didn't actually say he was taking over as Kingpin, but rather that if criminals feel are are so weak that they need somebody to look to that he is now that person yeah. um anyways, it kind of deals with how that city like what that city was like after that right we see. You know, this, this young woman who who clarifies the point that I was trying to make and saying that he never he never said those words exactly. He didn't declare himself the kingpin. And then that after that, she did go on to change her life because she was there when that, that fight happened with Wilson Fisk. And it, it significantly impacted her and decided that that was the time when she had to make better choices. We see that there are other points that are starting to, to be related. You know, there there is a woman who is the, the wife of a supervillain. And it's kind of this thing where people start asking her. So, so like, almost holding it against her. It's like, you couldn't see the signs of your husband being a supervillain. Like, do you have any responsibility uh, of that? And he says that, you know, like, she's not trying to excuse her husband. But before it happened, she did see this kind of weird little alien baby looking creature like talking to him and so this woman from across the room stands up and slaps her and then she says that she like this the second woman she was one of the victims of her husband right and so to hear her try to excuse it as in like you know he's hearing some voices or he's doing this because of whatever is insulting to her as a survivor uh, of these attacks and you know we start seeing another uh, a third woman bring up you know, like this little alien baby creature, whatever that you're saying that you saw, that it looks something like this. And she lifts, lifts up a paper and it's the exact drawing, obviously because we're reading a comic book, we see what she yeah. saw. And so it matches uh, exactly to, to what is being shown. And um, we find, then we, we kind of start did diving deeper into this third woman's uh, life or reason for being here. And she says that she was there when Matt Murdock got married, right? And they start, she starts explaining how she was there, and she says, "Like you know, I, she worked with Mila when they were both in like the the housing organization that she worked at to help Hell's kitchens grow, and um, they happened to be at, at she happened to be at the wedding, and she explains that this ba- this drawing of this alien baby creature that that she had shown was the last thing that her daughter drew before she basically." gouged her eyes uh, her eyes out and killed herself right Ooh. and so there's clearly something more sinister happening with the, this creature and she explains that you know like her daughter had been kidnapped by jonathan powers who is a daredevil villain that goes by the jester and he dresses up as a jester again has. like the daredevil villains weren't were not were not not the most not the most i guess serious villains but daredevil does happen to to rescue rescue uh rescue the, the daughter right and so then another person in the circle starts talking about like you know Daredevil is a ninja and that sometimes he, like he he gains his powers from religion or whatever and that he, you could be there and you wouldn't even see him and then he says isn't that true Matt and then you realize that sitting in the circle is also this red-headed man with glasses on and a hat and so Matt Murdock is also there And so as we're continuing kind of this support group, everybody all of a sudden turns to him and is wondering, like, has Daredevil been sitting here this entire time? Because they're all kind of pouring their hearts out about, like, how their lives have been impacted by Daredevil slash Matt Murdock, question mark, I guess, because nobody knows for sure if he is or isn't. And he explains that he, like, you know, first of all, that he's really sorry for just imposing himself, but he was following the man who, who had just pointed him out. He was following him, and that's why he landed in this circle. And he talks about, like, He explains his side of his fight with the jester and what had happened. And, you know, when he finally confronts him and then the daughter uh, of the person that had seen the marriage is there, he's fighting the jester. And then all of a sudden, when the jester is about to lose, uh, he kind of starts almost like having a seizure. And then this alien baby thing just comes out of his mouth. And so that's why the daughter had seen it and was so traumatized by what she had seen. Because it really is like a grotesque alien baby thing. Like, I I wish I could show (laughs) you what it looks like. But I will, maybe I can show you this panel and you can just let people know how disgusting it is that it's just like vomiting the the little aliens. Maybe I'll go gouge my eyes out soon after this. Yeah. (laughs) And so I guess what we return to the circle and Daredevil explains that there has been kind of this ride, this this new uh, player in town that mixes like, you know, all these religious practices of Japan. And again, there's a strong ties to Japan because of the yakuza Mm -hmm. that were brought up earlier. And so on, and so among some of the mystic things that that they had brought in was the presence of this like kind of dark magic thing that would give people power. So it was kind of cursed, and that's what the jester had done. You know, uh, Daredevil chases this man that he had followed in, and he he confronts him. And when he's losing again, this this baby alien creature is about to come out, and then he gets to try to find a new host. This man decides to just give it uh, end it all, and he shoots himself. But the baby alien thing is still halfway through his mouth, and so both of them die. uh you know, his the guy, the host and the I guess the parasite just lay there uh dead. Matt Murdoch returns to to the support group and apologizes to everyone in general, like you know he's apologizing for interrupting, he's apologizing for what this man did, but he's also apologizing for how everybody's life has been impacted by the choices that he's made, right? And he basically, they start asking him, so like, why admit that you're Daredevil? And he's still kind of coy. He's so like, well, I never said I was Daredevil, right? Um, he, he, Like, he's still trying to play that fine line, but it's just, he says, basically, you know, all my life I've tried to do the best that I can. And sometimes that has come with a lot of consequences. And I just want people to know why, despite the consequences, I keep on doing it, right? And I think this is kind of, we throughout this whole series of Bendis, we've seen, uh, you know, Matt Murdock go through a lot and start to wonder why does he do it, or like, you know, does is he to blame? Is he not to blame? And I think he's sort of starting to come to terms with the idea that he does it for an important reason, and he understands that there are consequences, but he does it because he thinks that he's able to shoulder those those consequences, right? And so I think it sets him up in a nice as in coming to, 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 to terms with everything that's been happening, which leaves us to our last uh, last volume, which is called The Murdoch Papers, which is uh, really, really, really just knocks it out of the park in terms of wrapping up this story but also leaving it in an interesting place because comic books are a continuing uh, art form, you know like it, it, it Bendis will finish his run, but then he has to hand it over yeah. to somebody else who's going to have to take the pieces where they left off and build off something mm-hmm. greater. And I think the transition from Brian Michael Bendis to Ed Brubaker is uh, magnificent. And we'll talk about this, issue, this, this trade and I'll kind of talk about why I think it's so good. So the Murdoch Papers, again, continues to bring back all the, those uh, loose ends that, that he had been leaving throughout the, the trades and starts tying them up. We revisit Ben Urich, who, you know, had helped uh, Mila find Daredevil at the Night Nurse's location a while back and he's being sent to speak to Wilson Fisk, who we find out obviously survived the attack from the Kingpin. He's being held by the feds at a secret location. And he brings um, Ben Urich to to meet with him because he tells him that he wants Ben Urich to publish uh, his deal that he is proposing to the feds, which is that he will admit to everything that he has done. He will own up to all his nefarious crimes, but he wants complete absolution and in exchange he will give um he will give the the feds what they want and that is the proof that daredevil is matt murdoch and so once again we return to this like you know the the dance of is he or isn't he is finally going to come to an end and ben Yurik is curious as to why bring him in like why force him to be part of the, the this whole thing like why they would take that deal um as Daredevil still has not heard this part, obviously because he's far away. His life is actually starting to come slightly back together. Mila shows up and realizes. Uh, I think I, I don't, I'm not. I don't recall if I had mentioned this, but she had asked for a, a divorce um, after kind of realizing that their marriage was. Um, part of the mental breakdown that matt murdoch had been going through and then matt murdoch kind of says like that's fair enough yeah he, he he's kind of like well a i'm a catholic so he doesn't i'm not keen to simply say like we should get divorced and then b he's kind of like yeah maybe deciding to get married was a product of a mental breakdown but the love that i feel is real and you know he's kind of like I don't want this, and so I'm not going to give it to you or something like that at one point. But it's kind of like part of a bigger conversation that she says like she wants it. So he's like, here, the papers are signed. I, I signed them because I love you. And he's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to give this to you, but I love you enough that I know this is what you want here. And so it seemed like that speech kind of worked, and Mila shows up again at Matt Murdock's offices, and they're kind of reconnecting and rebonding as Foggy heads out to, to read the newspaper. And there it is, big, uh, another... Front page splash of the Daily Bugle: Kingpin tells all the truth about Murdoch revealed. And as uh, you know, Matt is finally enjoying his life, all the pieces start coming together, and the FBI, the case against uh, Matt Murdoch, is suddenly stronger. Like the one that was started by the the former attempt of, at the person trying to be the kingpin who had ratted out Matt Murdoch and started all, all these these this uh, I guess chain of events that have led to the point where we're at angela el toro is saying like she's uh incredulous that the fbi would decide to go after matt Murdock, who has for all intents and purposes at least tried to make the city better uh, and give the kingpin absolution for crimes that that obviously he he does not deserve and so she's outraged by it and she ends up quitting the FBI, and obviously that will lead to her being able to embrace the her the, the hero mm-hmm. persona that she has been discovering in the journey previously. You know, at the same time, both Electra and the Black Widow find out from the news of what's happening, and they show up at uh, Matt Murdock's doorsteps. Black Widow does have this scene beforehand where she meets with Foggy and kind of tells him, you need to disappear. Because you know uh not to put too fine a point uh, on it but it's like the it's hit the fan i guess is what i will say <laughs> and there there's no way for foggy to to come out of this so he needs to disappear and foggy is kind of like i'm in it you know like this is all like i've always known that this is what could happen and for better or for worse like uh, he's going to go down with with uh daredevil electron the other hand shows up directly at matt murdock's apartment you know at first he's kind of outraged and confused that she would show up again let's not forget that electra is an assassin uh, a ninja and leader of the hand and so they fight for a bit until electra uh tells them turn on your tv and so he turns on the tv and he hears on the news as does mila of what's happening of how the kingpin is making a deal and uh daredevil and electra head to to the roof of um uh, of the building and there they meet uh, uh it, it's uh, a variety of characters i guess they, they you know the black widow shows up angela del toro with uh, the white tiger medallions they all kind of show up because they are in a way friendly to matt murdoch and they want to see what's happening uh black widow and electra do not see eye to eye when it comes to what comes next black widow thinks that electra's trying to betray him and she asks him so like if you if you knew this was an issue like or, or i guess maybe like explain what the issue is and we find out that uh, Kingpin has something that he calls the Murdoch Papers, located in a safe in a building, and it has all the information that you would need to tie together um, Matt Murdoch and the Daredevil. And so um, Black Widow asks, "If if you know this to be true, then why not go ahead and just grab all, all the papers and do, destroy them? Right? Like if you if you really are trying to help Matt, like why would not that not be the better way to do it?" And Electra's response is because Matt is a member of the American legal system, and she knows how important it is to him. She was in college with him when he decided to dedicate his life to it, and she wasn't sure how he wanted to fight this. If he wanted to fight it as Matt Murdock, the lawyer, or Daredevil, right? And so, again, like the central thesis of of Bendis' run has been like, what do these two sides of the coin mean? And so as as Daredevil is trying to figure out what to do, we kind of... uh, Head over to Rikers Island where we see the owl. Now, if, in case we had forgotten where uh, the owl was left off, he had tried to take over the Kingpin territory after Kingpin um, had been betrayed and and, and um, by his son and, and the I can't even remember his name from the beginning. But you know, like the, those people at the beginning that tried to t- make a, a move after the Kingpin territory, uh, Owl had tried to pick up some of those pieces and then found himself on the losing end. And so he is incredibly pissed off that the Kingpin will be able to gain his power back. Meanwhile, he is rotting in Rikers Island. And so we return to where Daredevil is trying to decide what to do. And he asks Elektra, who else knows about these papers? And then she admits that only one other person does. And just as he's asking who, we see a card flying straight to Elektra's neck and Daredevil grabbing it last second. And a card uh, is uh, the calling card of one Bullseye, who has also returned back to the story one last time. They have a a fight uh, outside of this building where the Murdoch papers seem to be located. And one of my favorite moments, um, as Electra and Black Widow are trying to get fight off uh, Bullseye, Daredevil turns around. He grabs Angela Toro's talisman, breaks her arm, and pushes her off a building. Which is, uh, I guess, kind of out of character. But, you know, he explains it's like, what I I broke her arm and she's passed out. What I did to her is nothing compared to what like Bullseye would do to an unprepared hero, right? Because, again, she's only just started training and trying
0: to figure it out. I have to ask, is he he dressed as Daredevil during all this? Or is he as Matt? Because if I was just walking along the street and look up to the roof and Matt Murdock is there surrounded by all these people that I know are heroes already... I'd be like, oh well, he's he's clearly Daredevil, isn't he? I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, he's dressed up as Daredevil. Fortunately, he put on his clothes after being with Mila and then Electra showing up. He is. I th- I do still think it's funny the idea of walking around New York City and then you're like, okay, like there's four heroes up there on that roof. <laughs> clearly, something's going down. I need to get a taxi and get the hell out of here. Anyways, Bullseye goes on this killing spree as he does. You know, Daredevil kind of gets distracted. He fights him. He beats him. And in the end, uh, Bullseye gets run over by a car, which will, you know, don't worry. He's not not dead. I, I don't think any of these these writers were keen on killing any of these characters because they were just uh, all kind of involved in this mm-hmm. world. But as he wins that, that that battle against Bullseye and gets distracted, he gets shot on the shoulder. And Electra takes him to the Night Nurse. And then we kind of go back to Ben Yurik and we find out why kingpin um have brought him in because as the the feds go into the building to try to find the matt murdoch papers we find out that there are no murdoch papers that they never existed that uh kingpin had made up that lie to keep his people under control and that the true way to tie uh Matt Murdock to Daredevil is the DNA that is on uh, the floor after being shot in the shoulder. He's left blood there. And so he said, all you need to do is match the, D- the the DNA from the blood of Daredevil to the DNA of Matt Murdock. And they're like, well, we can't find Matt Murdock. And then kind of the kingpin turns to Ben Urich and he's like, well, Ben Urich knows where he is because he, he knows where the night nurse is. And then he's saying, and if he doesn't tell you, you can just throw him into jail and so Ben Yurik is forced that he has to reveal where the Night Nurse is, and it kind of all comes to an end with uh, you know a, a battle outside the cops against these heroes that are standing by Daredevil trying to fight them off. You know Iron Fist, Luke Cage show up because they they want to you know like they're they're friends with uh, with Matt, and then the Elektra brings in her ninjas, the Hand to help him, and obviously her ninjas are a lot more brutal than. Yeah. then the heroes are willing to fight. So it's kind of like a three-way fight between like the heroes, the cops, the ninjas, all trying to make sure that everybody's safe. They're trying to make sure that Matt Murdock doesn't go to jail. In the end, it's enough. Matt Murdock doesn't want to see his city torn apart. He comes out, red pants on, no shirt, face uncovered. Matt Murdock says, you know, enough. You can arrest me. Like, this, this is it. And so he, they arrest him. Mila has just showed up there. She starts crying, saying like, You know, she doesn't know where to leave. And so we see, like, these panels of all these people falling apart. Mila crying, the owl smiling, Black Widow sad. Ben Urich disappointed in himself for having revealed. The kingpin uh, excited to being able to leave Foggy's, you know, life about to to fall apart. And Matt, the last panel is just Matt Murdock in a cell. And so we have one last issue to deal with uh, before... We finish up this run and in this uh, it's basically Matt Murdoch and foggy representing Matt Murdoch in, in in trial and they ask the the, the the question as always how do you plead and in this moment foggy is about to stand up and say you know not guilty he pleads not guilty and then Matt just turns to him and says I'm sorry he beats uh, a guard he lets himself loose he goes to the roof where black widow is there uh, ready to help him escape. You know he meets up with Mila in, in, in Paris. That has been secretly taken there by the Black Widow as one last favor to pay. And then uh, when he's there one day, Bullseye he wakes up and a card is stuck in Mila's neck, and, and she has bled out. And it's Bullseye once again up up to his same antics, once just trying to make uh, Matt Murdock's life miserable. Uh, Matt. Uh, I guess metaphorically snaps and then literally snaps uh, Bullseye's neck and so that ends up Bullseye's oh, yeah. story and so yeah a life of, of misery leads uh, Matt to Japan where he, he meets up with Elektra and he you know they kind of bond and they think back to the time that they, they first met in, in in university or in college and if they were where they thought they would be and how like you know Matt doesn't have really anywhere else to go that there's no, no nothing left for him to do, and so she asks him. So what good would have running been, you know, like mm-hmm. from the very beginning? And so then we flash back to the trial, where once again they're asking him to, to ple- to, to, to to respond how he pleads. And so we see that this is all kind of not real what mm. like we had just seen, but like one path that he had considered. And we see Matt uh, say not guilty, and so that he's going to have to go face trial. You know, it ends with Matt Murdock being taken to jail and the kingpin ready to to escape. And then the cops come and arrest him again. And he's saying, like, we had a deal. And he's like, yeah, you had a deal for the crimes that you confessed to, but not these additional crimes that have been presented with proof. And the person that flipped on uh, on the kingpin is none other than the owl finally getting his, his revenge on the kingpin for what had happened to him. And so it ends with uh, with Kingpin in Rikers, Owl in Rikers, some other uh, important Hammerhead in in and and uh, in Rikers, and then the last person that gets brought in is none other than Matt Murdock in an orange jumpsuit in Rikers. So the Bendis uh, run ends with all these main players locked up in the same jail, and that's kind of where. Brew Baker will then take the reins off and write another uh, fascinating and interesting story. You know, he manages to bring in even more characters. At some point, Bullseye and the Punisher are all in the same jail. And uh, it's, it's just great. I think the Bendis run takes um, a hero that was... I mean, I've always been a fan of Daredevil, but his powers are kind of basic compared to, like, a lot of the flashier other ones. And so I think what Bendis recognizes is that his strength is not so much on his superhero side, but in who he is as a person outside Mm -hmm. the superhero side, right? And so he takes uh, a man and breaks him and tests him to see like what happens when you you reach your limit right like and that's truly where a, a hero will rise or fall and we see that again and again and again that even though matt murdoch sometimes may may you know take a misstep he rises to the occasion and he's ready to to face on any challenges that may come and so i remember reading this uh, the first time and, and loving who he is as a character i read it again and loved it just as much like if you haven't read these issues go out and read them like they're just fantastic that answers the question
0: i had of does it hold up seemingly the answer is absolutely yes
1: yeah absolutely i mean i will say again it's like i know that the black widow volume is not as related to when i was reading it i was like i mean it's good writing Hmm. still but it's you know not as um not as important to me um there are places like new avengers and some other places where bendis bendis's um tendency to be like overly verbose in his like beach bubbles and kind of a lot of joke cracking doesn't hold up Mm -hmm. but because of the serious tone uh, of daredevil he doesn't do it as often here and when he does it it does introduce a moment of levity and an otherwise very like somber and serious um so i I think like if if you you kind of are averse to some of like the the bendis Bendis isms uh that he's shown in other books they are not as a I would say, still give this a chance. I think you'll find that you will enjoy it. And moreover, I think the 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 strength of the overarching story that is told is far greater than any downfalls or weaknesses that you may find. And the art is absolutely beautiful. Like the it's perfectly. I I I think in a way, like it it redefined how we look at Daredevil now. Because I think when he started, he was very. Golden Age superhero mm-hmm. and then at some point he did go darker, but I think like the the art that Alex maleev shows is just captures like the pulp in the noir so perfectly, I think.
0: The only question I had was does he get his uh identity back by making a deal with the devil forgetting that he has a wife? I remember that's the that's uh Yeah, so uh, you know, I I, I had mentioned it earlier,
1: but we did have a bit of an internet connection here. But in the, the 40th anniversary special, um, he goes to Doctor Strange and he asks, like, is there anything magic-wise that you can do to help me, you know, set things back to how things were? And Doctor Strange says no, which I think, as you mentioned, is funny considering what we know now, you know, other heroes have gone through to to be able to get their, you know, lives back in order. But it, it does, taking that off the table does put Brubaker in an interesting position. So I was like, how, what do you do with a man whose identity has been outed, who is in jail, whose wife is, like, you know, in shambles, his business partner is in, like, legal ethical problems? Like, how do you... Where do you take your character next, right? And I think Baker does a great job with that. Like, if you read the Bendis run and then you, you're into it, go on to read Baker because he he does a good job of continuing that train. And he brings in even more characters. Like, Dakota North is... uh. A golden age character who was kind of like a model slash pi but you know brubaker brings her in and it really capitalizes on the pi sides of things and it's just great you know a the, the the supporting characters are great in uh in the, the brubaker run
0: oh good 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 for matt i suppose i mean it could have ended worse i guess
1: yeah yeah but and, and uh, there are moments where it also even gets darker in the brubaker run so i'm excited for for this yeah I was really yes, into I it.
0: I presume they're when Frank Castle shows up. Uh, if I was running yeah. <laughs> Rikers Island prison, like, can we just build different prisons? I mean, this seems insane. You would, I uh, was just going to put everybody, everybody in one prison. That's just going to, I see no problems with that.
1: Well, I, they acknowledge it a bit in the Baker run where they kind of say, like, you know, like if they killed themselves, it wouldn't be a total loss kind of thing. Like it's, it's less, uh, less, uh, you know, people out there in the
0: streets that are getting too complicated to deal with. So, if, if Daredevil is over, can you give us a tease as to what 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 could what could be next? Um,
1: I I'm pretty sure I'm torn. I I know I definitely want to read something that is not either um mm-hmm. Marvel mm-hmm. or DC. So I want to look at something that I have uh, been purchasing but perhaps not reading. And so my options are currently. Um, The Manhattan Projects by Hickman, who is the current writer of X-Men, who I enjoy. Then we have Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughan. And then the last thing that I was considering was Ed Brubaker's uh, Fatal, which I bought and never read, and I'm a big fan of Ed Brubaker. So we'll see. It'll be one of those three, I'm sure.
0: A month from now, we'll all know. Well, I imagine you'll know before everybody else. You'll be reading it. (laughs) Yeah, I have to get started a little earlier. Right, well, there you go. That is... Episode sixteen of a PhD student reads. I don't think I ever said. Did I even introduce who we were? Well, I'm the titular PhD student. I I, I noticed. I noticed that
1: we did we did not. But I, I was like, you know what? I think he's so into what he read this month that <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to let I'm the titular PhD continue. student
0: Daniel. Underwood. The Peruvian panel reader Rodrigo Cocting. That's me. There you go. That was that's been us for the past <laughs> one hour and thirteen minutes. Um. I'll say it again. Like, share, subscribe. Tell tell others, friends, enemies, loved ones, strangers, yeah. uh, whoever. Mm-hmm. Follow the Twitter. I'm not going to do another poll again, primarily because I have too many things now to put on a, a single Twitter poll. I think I'm just going to work my way down. It's a it's a massive stack in this in this uh, sort of alcove. I'll just whatever's on the top. I'll read that. Apart from what is on the top, it's the Irredeemable Omnibus. I can't read an omnibus in a month. I don't have that much free time. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. Um, I hope everybody out there is well. Stay safe. Indeed, indeed. The pandemic will be over soon, I promise. I do science, trust me. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, goodbye. Bye.